Now, by the end of this message, you're probably going to ask yourself, wasn't he supposed to talk about the resurrection? Uh, It is Easter after all. But um, guys, I'm wearing a colored shirt today, and you can't ask too much of me in one day, okay? You just, you just can't. It's not allowed, okay? So <laughs> here's the thing. We, we, um, we are a church founded on the resurrection of Jesus. You know, every, every Sunday, we talk about the resurrection. It undergirds everything that we're about. And so today, we are not specifically going to talk about the resurrection, but if that is something you are interested in, if that is a question you have, like, could this event actually have happened? Did it actually happen? All those questions. A year ago, Easter, April 1st, we started a series titled Skeptics Welcome. One of my favorite series. I love this series. Uh, We then went on to discuss for the next nine weeks, where we started with the conversation, the problem of the resurrection. Could this resurrection have actually happened? We went through all the the arguments for it. And then we went for nine weeks talking about some of the biggest problems that people have with the Christian faith. These aren't all the questions, of course. These aren't all the problems, but we went through some of the biggies. And so if you are interested in the conversation of the resurrection, if any of these things are enticing to you, if you have ever wondered about any of these things, then I would encourage you to go back to our webpage. Uh, You can go to the media tab of our website or subscribe to our podcast. Search for April 1st of last year, 2018, and begin to listen through this series where we wrestled with these very important topics. And hopefully then by the end, you will be inspired maybe to share that with other people who have similar questions, similar doubts, and get this into the hands of those people who could really use it. But today, we are beginning a series on the amazing grace of God. My friends, you need to be with us these next, I, these next two weeks. I, I recognize that some of you are out of town, and that's impossible for you to do, but you need to at least follow through with us, subscribe to our podcast, listen to these messages. I fully truly believe that these next three weeks, the three messages on the grace of God could absolutely change your life, could absolutely change you, and not only you, the people whom you love, the people who need the amazing grace of God. I absolutely believe this will change your life, and as an enticement, we have these, um, we have these bracelets here. On the, on the outside, it says, loving one another the same way God through Jesus has loved us. Um, it's, it's a model that we have. We talk about that idea often, and then on the inside, it's got the Restoration Church logo in repetition. Uh, we, we just got these on Friday, but I wear mine proudly because it's a great reminder of what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to be about. And if you are committing to be with us throughout this series, if you're committing to making Restoration Church a place where you want to grow to become more like Jesus and then impact our community in a like ways, I would really, really encourage you to get your hands on one of these. They're available at the Next Step kiosk after the service. Take one, be reminded, and then come for the next two weeks if you are able Or listen to the messages if you are able, because I fully believe that God is going to do something mighty and powerful through this series. And let me tell you why. Several months ago, I was at a birthday party with one of my kids. And uh, you know how it goes, right? All the parents are lined up against the wall. We're all wallflowers watching our kids interact and other people mingle. And and it just so happened that there was another dad at this birthday party, which never happens. I'm like (laughs) always the only dad who ever takes my kids to the birthday parties. I'm there with a bunch of moms. Uh, Yeah, Emily hates these. I'm going to stop talking before I say something I regret later, but... <laughs> so I'm usually the one who takes my kids to these birthday parties. And they're just so happened to be this other dad. And so naturally we gravitate towards each other and we start making small talk. And, and in time it was revealed that I am a pastor. And in time it was revealed that he is an atheist. And so, you know, it's just, this is an awkward situation, right? No, but he was, 
yeah, that's why, that's why I go. But it was, it was actually a really, really good conversation. Uh, he, was, he was a really good guy. Um, the, the reason that he, he was an atheist didn't shock me. And you know, his pathway to atheism was very typical in college. He had experienced the trauma that, that he wondered, you know, why would God allow something like this to happen? If God was really a good God, why would he allow something like this to happen? And, and then, you know, when he was younger, he would read, he read some of the Bible stories and, you know, they didn't just, they didn't fit in with his adult version of the world. You know, his experience with the world, his childhood understanding of the Christian faith didn't fit in with that. And so he just, you know, shoved it all off. It was, a, it was a fairy tale for children. It was a crutch for adults. And he just dismissed the whole thing. This pathway to atheism is just like almost every other pathway to atheism. It was nothing unique about it. But then he said something that was really interesting, which really sparked the conversation. And if, and if you know me and if you've been around, you're going to know why this sparked the conversation the way it did. He said, you know, I respect that you're religious. It's just, it's just not me. And I said, okay, here we go. <laughs> So I asked him a little more about the trauma that he experienced while he was in college. And he had said that, well, he was in college, he got his college girlfriend pregnant, and without him even knowing it, she went and had an abortion. So behind his back, without even telling him, he went and, and had an abortion. And he became so angry at her, but ultimately he blamed himself for the loss of this life. You know, I could have done more. I could have saved this child. You know, maybe I should have been more present. Maybe I, 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 just, I, sh- I should have continued the relationship rather than just shoving her off, you know, as a one-night stand or whatever it was. And uh, he just felt this incredible guilt for, for the abortion that his, that his college girlfriend had. And he carried this guilt on his back for 20 years, and I asked him how he coped with it. And, and the first thing he said is that, you know, while he was in college, well, he just, the, the party scene kind of numbed the pain. You know, the alcohol, the drugs, everything that he was doing in the party scene just kind of numbed the pain, and so he wasn't able to think about it. And eventually, when he, when he got out of college, he got a, a good-paying job. He actually began contributing finances to pro-life organizations, thinking that would, you know, kind of reverse, you know, kind of tip the celestial scale a little bit. And then even when he got married, he said, maybe if I have children and I give my children the very best life possible and I invest in them and I let them live like this child and not have the opportunity to, maybe that would wash away the guilt in him. And you have to be careful with stuff like this because, you know, we're, we're doing pastoral counseling with an atheist at a children's birthday party. So it's just kind of like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I, I try, try to be gentle and not too loud in our conversation, but it's, it's, it's. It's interesting because I was able to, to kind of gently turn the tables and, and help him realize that he, in fact, was the religious one, that I wasn't the religious one, that he was actually the religious one. You see, religion is just that thing that we do in attempt to fix the problem we know we have. So many of you in this room could preach this message this morning, right? The, they're the things we do in attempt to fix the problems we know that we have. You see, his religion was what? Drinking? And his religion was giving money to those charitable organizations. His religion was even having kids, as odd as it may sound. The, 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 the way that he invested in his kids was trying to release the guilt that plagues him. And everybody does this to some extent. Everybody is religious. Everybody except followers of Jesus. We are literally the only ones on the face of the planet who are not Religious. We are, not the, we are the only ones on the face of the planet who do not try to fix the guilt and the pain and the blame and the shame that we have by doing something ourselves. No, we rely on what has already been done through us, for us, through Jesus. We're not trying to fix the problem. We rely on what God has done on our behalf. But everybody is religious. Everybody's trying to fix the problem they know they have. See, what this man so desperately wanted was to be forgiven. 
deep down inside, that is what we all most long for in the face of our guilt, is it not? But the most common response to guilt is to turn to religion. I'm going to turn to something I can do that I have the power to do to try to fix the problem I know I have. So when the truth of what we've done has been exposed, what do we do? We cover it up. We run away. We hide. We blame shift. But religion, my friends, can never offer you forgiveness. Only a person can do that. You see, he craved what we all crave the most when our guilt is exposed. You know, when you're haunted by that thing that you've done? You've been there before, right? Right? We've all been there. When you're haunted by that thing that you've done, when you come home late at night and your parents are there waiting for you, or your spouse is there waiting for you, or your children are there waiting for you, when, you're, when your spouse tells you that you need to talk, that we need to talk, when your boss calls you into the office because that thing that you did has been found out, And that pit in your stomach begins to form. Because you know what you did. And you realize now that there are no loopholes. And there are no longer any excuses. And there is no way out. That everything that you have done, all of your guilt, all of your shame, it's laid out on the table. And you are in fear of what people are going to say about you and think about you and do to you now that it is out there. You see, what we crave in those instances is grace. You may not know the word, right? You, you may not have an, an idea of what you actually crave. You may not have a definition for it, but what you crave is grace. You are longing for someone to extend something to you that you know you don't deserve. Because why? You long to be forgiven. So this is the definition of grace we're going to be used for the next three weeks. Grace is the undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. Now, you can no more earn grace as you can plan your own surprise party. The minute that you begin to plan it, it is voided. The surprise is voided. And if you begin to think that you deserve grace, it actually voids the grace that is before you. You can ask for grace. You can beg for grace. You can plead for grace. But the minute that you think you deserve grace, grace no longer exists for you. It's no longer grace. And you can't even recognize or receive grace for what it is until you are convinced that you actually do not deserve it. It can only be an experience within the context of a relationship where you are on the negative side of the ledger, where you are the one who is wronged. And the more you recognize how off balance that scale is, the more beautiful grace is going to become to you, my friends. The more you recognize your faults, the more you recognize your sin, the more you recognize how wrong you have been in the face of others, in the face of God, the more beautiful grace is going to become to you. And my friends, this is what makes Christianity so unique. This is the very reason why I am not religious. It's because I do not rely on what I have done. I rely on what God has done for me and the grace that he has offered me in abundance. And even if you never get to the point of intellectually believing and recognizing and agreeing that Christianity is true, don't you long for it to be true? Deep-seated within you, don't you long for grace to exist in this world? We all do because we're all guilty and we're all full of shame and we've all done things that we know we ought not to have done. And so John, one of the very first followers of Jesus, he wrote or dictated one of the four accounts that have survived antiquity of the, of the life of Jesus. And here is how he begins. He says this, 
the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, he doesn't have words sufficient enough to actually, you know, describe exactly what happened, but he was convinced after spending time with Jesus, after living with Jesus for three years, that God had put on flesh, that God had become incarnate, and that Jesus was God in the flesh. The explanation and the source of all things had actually become a man. He continues, and we, and when he says we, he's not referring to you and me, we, he's referring to Andrew and Matthew and all of his buddies, you know, all the people who witnessed Jesus and lived with Jesus and walked alongside Jesus, the tens of hundreds of thousands of people who interacted with Jesus and saw what he had accomplished. We have seen, right? We didn't just hear about this. It wasn't like a story that had been passed down from the generations. This wasn't a rumor. No, we had seen, we experienced it. We touched Jesus with our own hands. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Not the balance of grace and truth. That's what we try to pull off, isn't it? A little bit of grace, a little bit of truth. But here's the thing. Anytime you try to pull off the the balance of grace and truth, you lose a little bit of truth, you lose a little bit of grace, and you do not accomplish what truth and grace in their fullness came to accomplish. No, Jesus was full on grace, full on truth all of the time. Now, some of you grew up in grace churches. And some of you had grace parents where they said, you know what, uh, in fear that you may not come back, I'm just going to say you can live whatever kind of life you want. And it's okay, you know, any kind of life you want is fine to live and you can just go your own way and do your own thing and it's fine. It didn't matter how you live your life, God's grace is going to cover it all. And some of you grew up in truth churches and some of you grew up with truth parents where you were afraid by your behavior because you were afraid that maybe you'll be publicly exposed publicly shamed for not being accepted because you couldn't follow the rules and the laws and you kept looking in line, but your heart was always afraid. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And he is full on grace and he is full on truth. You see, Jesus never watered down the truth and he never turned down the grace. He called sin, sin, and he called sinners, sinners. And then he went and died for the sinners and paid for the sin full on grace, full-on truth all of the time. And John, so many others, as they experienced this, it's what inspired them. You know, seeing Jesus be the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace all of the time inspired them to write the words that they did and that would shape Western civilization and would change the way that we view God. This was an idea that had never shown up or been introduced in human history up until this point. And even though John was experiencing all of his friends being murdered and martyred for their faith, and he himself having a price on his head and being excommunicated from the life he knew, he was able to declare because of his time with Jesus that God is love. Because Jesus was love in a body. Because isn't that what love is? It's full-on grace. It's full-on truth. If you're a good parent or you were raised by good parents, you know this. Love is full-on grace and full-on truth all of the time. It does not water down the truth. It does not turn down the grace. It is the fullness of both of them. And so John was there one afternoon when Jesus approached Matthew, the tax collector. 
They came to this intersection. Matthew was collecting taxes, and Jesus approached him, and he asked him to follow him. And all the other disciples are like, no, 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 no. Jesus, you cannot ask Matthew to follow us. He is a tax collector. Don't you know how sinful he is? Don't you know what he has done? He has sided with the Romans. He is stealing from his own people, the Jewish people. He is a dirty, rotten, thieving sinner. There is no way that he can be part of this thing, Jesus. And Jesus said, Matthew, come, follow me. And Peter and the guys are thinking, this is not going to go well, Jesus. It's not going to go well. We're going to lose the crowd. No one's going to like this. He's a bad person. But Matthew gets up and he says, Jesus, well, where are we going? (laughs) And Jesus said something that offended everybody, all of his followers. He said, Matthew, we're going to your house. And Peter said, I'm not going to his house. I've never stepped foot in the house of a dirty, rotten sinner before. And Jesus said, you're coming with me. You're following me. I'm going to his house, so come along. But Jesus, he's a tax collector. You didn't ask him to repent first. You didn't ask him to give back the money that he had stolen. You didn't didn't ask him to confess all of his sins. Jesus, don't you know that he's a sinner? Don't you know that he's a, a horrible, horrible Jewish thief? And you're just going to go into his house like he's one of us? Yeah, we're going to go to his house for dinner. Come along. It's so awkward, isn't it? It's a very awkward situation. And then Jesus asked Matthew to invite his friends to dinner, and, and Matthew was thinking, Jesus, you're not going to like my friends. All my friends are tax collectors. We're all a bunch of Jewish thieves. You're not going to like my friends. They're not going to like you. This is going to make the situation so much more awkward. Jesus, you do not want my friends to come to dinner with us. They're all the wrong people. And then there's Peter and Andrew and all the other disciples sulking in the corner because they don't want to be there, and they're upset, and they're irritated that they be there with all these rotten, filthy sinners. And then there are the Pharisees, too. The Pharisees were the ones who walked around with their hands clenched close to their their chest because they were afraid of touching anything unclean because it would make them ceremonially unclean for seven days. And so they walked around in their holiness and in their righteousness, not interacting, you know, with any of the filthy sinners of the day. But they followed Jesus around everywhere he went because they wanted to expose all of his deeds and they wanted to try to trip him up so that they could get rid of him. And so they're there and they're watching and they wouldn't have gone into this party, but they're standing outside the house of this party. And we're told that when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, right? They sent a messenger probably inside the house to ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, if he's a rabbi, if he's a representative of God, he should be eating with us. Why is he spending all of his time with those horrible, filthy sinners? And so they go in, you know, I'm sure whoever delivered this message did so very loudly so that, so that Matthew and all of his sinful, filthy friends could hear. You know, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you know, they've come from the temple and they want to know, Jesus, why you're eating with all these filthy sinners? Why are you spending all of your time with all these horrible people? And, and Jesus, you know, he answers equally loud so that everybody can hear. He says, don't call Matthew and his friends sinners. That may hurt their feelings. Now, for those of you who've ever read the Bible, you know that's not actually in the Bible. (laughs) But isn't this our response in our day and age? Oh, you know, uh, don't offend anybody. We can't, uh, tolerance is the greatest good in our society, so don't offend anybody, right? Okay, so um, let's just let them be. Don't hurt their feelings. Don't make them feel bad about themselves. That's not what Jesus said. He actually makes an awkward situation so much more awkward. He does that grace and truth thing that he does all the time. 
He's at Matthew's house. He's invited Matthew to follow him, and he says out loud so everybody can hear, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And Matthew's thinking, Jesus, come on, man, you're my guest. (laughs) Like, I just served you dinner, man. I just spent this money to feed you. Are you calling me sick? And Jesus would say, yes, you are stealing from your own people. You are a dirty, filthy sinner. Matthew, your heart is not right. But I still want you to follow me. But I still want you to come along with me. Yeah, yeah, you guys are the tax collectors. You are the sinners. Like, the sinners have their own category, but you're a category of yourselves. Like, yeah, you're a sinner. But come, follow me. And then Jesus tells the messenger to tell the Pharisees who are outside the following, go and learn. I mean, come on, the the Pharisees were the teachers, right? They're the ones who are supposed to have known. And then he quotes from their own scriptures as if they did not know what they were actually teaching. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous. And then maybe he swoops his hand across the entire room, but the sinner's. You see, I'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner, Jesus would say, but I'm not afraid to go to their house for dinner. Yeah, you're a sinner, but come along, come follow me. Truth, grace. And then one day Jesus is teaching on the Temple Mount and the Pharisees drag this woman up to him and throw her down at his feet. Apparently they'd held her all night. They'd been waiting for this opportunity to see what Jesus would do. They wanted to trip him up and And hopefully he would say something or do something that they could finally condemn him for. She had been caught in adultery. Maybe you guys have known this story. Someone was caught in adultery. And and according to their law, they were supposed to stone her to death. And so they asked Jesus, now what do you say? You know, what should we do with this woman who's been caught in adultery? They're trying to trap him, but Jesus looks at them and then he bends down and begins to writing something in the dirt. And if, if you have a few free minutes on your hand, you know, go and, and read scholars of what they think he's writing. But I think he was writing, it takes one to know one in Aramaic, probably, you know, writing in the dust of the earth. <laughs> Eventually, Jesus stands up and, and he said something very risky, but very devastating as well. He says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, he wasn't saying that the law of Moses was wrong. He was simply saying that if you want to take the law of Moses seriously, it's going to condemn all of you. We're all a bunch of filthy sinners. And so let's go throw stones at each other, man. Why'd you drag this woman before me? We're all condemned by the law of God. And the Jews get the point. The people who had brought her before him get the point, And they leave the woman lying on the ground next to Jesus. And it's this really, really beautiful moment, right? This, this sinful woman is lying next to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He stands up and he says, you know, darling, I know that your childhood has been really hard. I know that your daddy abandoned you when you were a kid. I know that nobody ever loved you. I know that you felt worthless throughout your whole life. I get why you did what you did. I get it. And he pats her on the back. That's not what's in the Bible, by the way, if you guys have ever read the Bible. (laughs) Jesus stands up and he says, leave your life of sin. I mean, he takes this really beautiful moment and he ruins it. Leave your life of sin. Here's the grace, here's the truth, right? You are guilty, he would say to her. But I don't condemn you. 
Wait, 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 Jesus, what, what do you mean you don't condemn me? I'm guilty, and if I'm guilty, then I am condemned. The innocent are the ones who go free, and yet you're calling me guilty, and yet you're calling me free? Jesus, what is this all about? What is this message you are trying to get across? It is a message of the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace. See, what is so perplexing and paradoxical and backwards, but so amazing about grace is that it is only activated in the face of truth. And my friends, this is why religion is so toxic. Because religion tells us that we should cover up the truth and avoid the truth and run away from the truth about who we are and what we've done and the guilt and the shame that we are burdened with. And that is why religion will never save you is because it runs away from grace which is trying to save you. It denies the grace that is only offered in the face of truth. And see, God's love and pursuit of you is the fullness of truth met with the fullness of grace. And I could give you example after example after example from Scripture that would speak of how Jesus met sinners where they were at. He did not deny the fact that they were sinners. He did not deny the fact that they had rebelled and rejected God. But in spite of what they had done and who they were, he embraced them in his grace and his mercy nonetheless. And then he invited them to follow him. I could give you example after example in Scripture, but I'd rather give you a story from our modern day. I'm going to invite my friend Stacy Ford, who is going to share her experience of the grace being activated in the phrase of truth. So would you please welcome Stacy to the stage? <laughs> Stacy, hello. Hi. Oh, God, microphone. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I know you're nervous to be here, so we are all a bunch of people who are very graceful towards you and gracious towards you, and we love you, and so let that wash over you right now, because I know it's, it's nerve-wracking. Um, can you briefly describe your backstory? Okay. Very um, briefly. I know it's... Very you- briefly. Um, I was... I mean, many of you have heard me talk about this before, but I was um, molested as a child, um, abused, uh, raped. Um, I had become a drug addict, alcoholic, um, then I had moved on and had children, and then it all came flooding back, and I became a drug addict again, mm-hmm. who left her children, abandoned them, and it, my kids are there. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but these are all things that we've talked about deeply, yeah. um, and they know it all. Yeah. So that's that. Yeah. So there's a lot more to it, of course, than there's that. There's so much but, more to it. But. Yeah. But, um, but that, that kind of gets you the idea, right? And so was there ever a time when you denounced truth, when you denied truth, because you wanted to preserve your self-image, you wanted to um, run away from sh- the shame that you felt or the guilt that you felt? Was there ever a time in your mm-hmm. life where you felt like, you know what, I can't be truthful about who I am and what I've done because it's going to you know, yeah. give a certain impression to the world about me? All the way up to uh, just over a year ago, yeah. I was dishonest at all times with everyone around me and with myself especially hmm. and then trying to hold hide the truth from god which i mean that's pretty impossible right and i know that now yeah yeah um i with the way that i was raised there was a lot of shame and i was taught to lie you have to hide all of these things i was baptized at 5 so that my father could hold god against me um and keep me in a state of fear hmm. and you know if you saw, if I told you the truth and you would see what happened, you would see who I really was and who I was was 
Um, I always felt like nothing. I always felt shame. Um, I always felt like I was a bad person that yeah. didn't deserve love. Yeah. I was unlovable. So when did you finally agree to the truth about yourself? You said about a year ago, mm -hmm. right, that you, you started confessing and acknowledging and believing some things that weren't so, so pretty and wonderful about yourself. Well, I mean, I've spoken here before that year, and, sure. you, know, it, it, you know, relapse after relapse, I took bits and pieces from one relapse to the next relapse, and I was able to intellectually describe things that had happened to me, but I still wasn't able to absorb the truth about the things that I had done. Uh, there's a big difference. Um, what I had done outweighs anything that had happened to me. Yeah. Um, so... In my final relapse, a little over a year ago, um, it was one night, and it didn't solve the problem. It always solved the problem. That was always my solution. And this time, it didn't do that. And I could swear that I heard God quietly telling me, no, this isn't it. No, this is done. And um, I kind of felt... I did feel grace pour over me, and it's a really hard thing to describe, but I felt it physically, and I felt it emotionally, and I jumped out of the car that I was in, and I ran for help, mm. and I knew that um, I had to tell the truth. That was the one piece that was missing, that I just could not be honest, because what if you didn't like me? What if you didn't love me? What if God really did truly, completely abandon me? Yeah. So for up to that point, I mean, you, you tried what we all tried. You tried religion, right? And it wasn't maybe in a church or a, or a, a church, I guess, in a, in a place like this, but it was everything else you were trying to fix. You know, it fixed the problem for a little while, but it didn't fix it permanently. Right. Drugs, and finally, yeah, alcohol, yeah, lying, and it, there were all these numbed things. the pain, it, right? It got rid of the sorrow for a little while, yeah. but it did not fix the problem. There were a million things between yeah. myself and God. Yeah. So, and they weren't good. So you were scared to admit it, right? Um, because I think... And maybe you experience this in, in, in some place in your life, and I think we've all have, but when you admit that in a, in a context that is not full of grace, then it is condemning, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were ever to reveal who you really were, then people would shame you, and they would just burden you even more than you already feel and already experience. Mm -hmm. And so when did you finally get into a community of a people that you could be honest with? I mean, you said it to God, and that's very important, but was there a community of people that you were able to be honest with and to well, coming here. be very truthful with? Being asked to share um, my experience here and having people come to me and say that they were inspired and pray for me and pray with me. Um, here is where I, AA taught me that I need God. Yeah. Here is where I learned who he was. Yeah. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, if you're not telling the truth, you're not going to stay sober. And I've learned that by listening and watching these other people. And then when I finally knew that the truth is the only thing that's going to set me free mm -hmm. from all of that, I finally started to tell it. And I told my sponsor the first time we met, I'm afraid to tell you everything because what if you stop sponsoring me? What if, right, right. What if you tell me how bad I am? Mm -hmm. And she said, I would never, never do that. Your experience is your experience. Your pain is your pain, and your perp there's purpose in your pain. And your yeah. mess is your message. Yeah. And now I've been able to find a community that I care about and cares about me. I can honestly say that I love people. And when people say they love me, I can feel it. Mm. It's real. Yeah. 
And it's only because of God. I can't explain how that happened. Yeah. So even though you are who you are and you've done what you've done and what has happened to you has happened to you, you still know that you are loved Mm -hmm. in spite of it all. And that's an incredibly freeing thing, is it not? It is. Yeah. So um, this isn't the way um, that the world um, functions, right? A a world that functions in religion, trying to fix the problem on themselves. Uh, We're trying to avoid truth at all costs. It's not actually the way of a lot of churches, unfortunately. And maybe that's been some of your experience in churches is that you can't tell the truth about what you've done and who you are because of fear that you're going to be met with condemnation. Mm -hmm. But it's what everybody craves. It's what everybody longs for, I think, deep down inside to be set free. So what would you say to the person wrestling with shame and guilt and sin and fear of their truth being exposed this morning? You have to face that fear and know that God is only love. And look around you and see where grace presents itself. Grace, to me, I have to sometimes see things in a tangible way. And grace to me is the people here, is AA. Is, you know, we do this 11th step in AA and I try to do it every single night. And I have to tell the truth about my resentments and my fear. Where was I selfish? Where was I dishonest? Um, And then follow that up with where did I show love and compassion? And... Being able to do that, you can feel the grace when you're done because you share that with other people. And it doesn't hurt. There's no pain in that. And sometimes you cry through it um, because it feels so good to let that go. Because when you carry those things from day to day to day to day, it piles up and it's just a mountain of weight. Mm -hmm. But if you can let it go at the end of every day, you know, then then that is living the way that God wants us to live. Yeah. Freedom in his grace. Yeah. Freedom Thank you. in his grace. Thank you. Thank you. Powerful. Thank you, Stacy. Um, so the reason that we are so perplexed, I think, by grace is that like life, grace is unfair. It's not fair. My friends, it's better than fair. It is disturbingly better than fair, and we see this because after his resurrection, right, um, Jesus approaches Peter, and Peter was the one that had denied Jesus three times. He was the person who said, I never even knew the man when he was confronted about knowing Jesus. He was like, I never even knew the man. I never even spent any time with him. I have no idea who you are talking about. He denied Jesus three times. And Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, I'm going to put you in charge of the whole thing. No, you don't deserve it, Peter, but I'm going to put you in charge of the whole thing. And then about a year later, he approaches this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was the one who wanted to wipe out Christianity from the face of the earth. He persecuted Christians. He stoned Christians to death. He did everything in his power to wipe Jesus from the face of the earth. And Jesus approaches, approaches Saul. We know him better as Paul, the apostle. And he says, Paul, Saul, I'm going to use you to bring my message to the furthest rims of the earth. You are going to be the tool of my salvation for so many people. And isn't he, in part, the reason that we're here today? We have his letters that we read. He wrote half the New Testament. This is the grace of God empowering, not just freeing people, but giving them a new purpose. That yes, in my sin and in my failures and in my doubts and insecurities, I feel like I cannot accomplish anything, that I'm worthless, that I cannot do what God has called me to do. But God's grace comes along and it says, I'm not only going to set you back upright, I'm going to give you an engine to start moving in the new direction. That is the power of God's grace. 
Yes, you've done horrible things. Yes, you're a sinner. Jesus never once denies the fact or he never sugarcoats the fact. He looks sinners in the eye and he calls sin, sin and sinner, sinners. And then he goes and he dies for the sinners and he pays for their sin. And then he entrusts those sinners with a responsibility and with a task. Why? Because Jesus is the one who brings grace and truth, not in half measure, not to the mix or the blend of, no, full-on grace and full-on truth. All grace, all truth, all the time, because that is what love is, and Jesus is the embodiment of love. I'm going to invite Emily forward, and her and I are going to sing one final song to conclude this service together. Here's the thing. Our, our pushback typically on this is, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's really good, Ross. Um, but what about God's justice? And what about the consequences? And my friends, we're going to talk about that next week. And so if you are able, absolutely join us next week as we have part two of this series. But wasn't Jesus concerned with consequences and justice? And I think that Jesus knew better than anyone about the consequences and the justice of God. He knew that God's justice would absolutely crush us because we're all sinners. Every single one of us are sinners deserving of the consequences of God. He knew that if God were to be just towards us, fully just towards us, that we were all condemned, that we're all screwed, that there was no hope for any of us. We have all sinned and nobody can pay back God. That is true of every single person in this room. That is true of every single person who has ever walked upon the face of this planet. We have all sinned and nobody can pay God back. And Jesus wasn't aware of, uh, unaware of consequences. He knew better than anyone that consequences of sin were already crushing us. Because here's what I believe. I believe that every single sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every time you are selfish towards another person, there is a consequence towards you for that action. You are dying a little bit inside. You are not living up to the fullness of your humanity when you do that. Every single sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every single one. And so Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, came to carry the consequence for you. He knew what the consequences were. They put him to death. He knew better than anybody about the justice and the consequences. And here's the thing. The good news is embodied in a person. It is Jesus. And the good news is summarized in a word, and it is grace. You see, grace is an invitation. Jesus is saying to you, I know all about you. I know everything that you've done. I know everything that you've thought. I know that everything that has ever been done to you. And in spite of all of that, I still want you to follow me, he says. But be warned, he would say, that if you choose to follow me, I am going to lead you away from your sin. And I'm going to lead you deeper into the grace of God. And be warned, because that grace will change you into a new being. It will change everything about who you are. And no, I have not forgotten what you've done. It's better than that. I remember everything, and in spite of it all, I love you. And so come, follow me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. We live in a world, Father, where we are running away from the truth of who we are all the time. We are trying to cover it up. We are trying to fix our problem on our own or hide it or conceal it or blame it away, Father. We do this every single day. And I just, I pray, Father, that we might be a people who just shed all that and say, God, it's true of me. 
okay, here I am, God. I'm exposing it all to you. I'm laying it out before you, God. It's all there. And in the face of that truth, we will be met with an incredible grace, an amazing grace that does not leave us stagnant, but, Father, pushes us forward into something amazing. Father, thank you for what you have done for us. Not what we have done to earn it. Not what we have done to deserve it. This is the undeserved, unearned, unearnable grace of God. And it is amazing. Thank you, Father. Continue to allow your grace to transform us. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.